you will open your Bibles back out to Psalm 1. That's where we're going to be spending our time this afternoon. Psalm 1. We're going to be meditating on the only two ways to live. The only two ways to live. Psalm 1. Let's read it again. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. There are only two ways for any of us to live. Two paths that we can take in this life, and we can only choose one. The first way is outlined in this psalm is God's way, and that's the way that's rooted in, shaped by His Word. The other way, the second way, is the way of the wicked, and the way of the wicked is rooted in and shaped by the world and its rebellion against God. God's way leads to unending joy and eternal life. The way of the wicked leads a different direction. It leads, in the end, to utter ruin and final judgment. And we need to consider these two ways before us today as the only two ways to live. When we boil all things down, it comes down to these two. We'll either choose God's way or we will choose the way of the wicked. And Psalm 1 is not unique in talking this way in the Bible. In fact, this presentation of only two ways is actually part of the biblical story and part of of how God makes His truth known to us. Think back to Genesis 3. You don't have to turn there. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden are presented with two choices. They can either trust God's Word and trust that He knows best and refrain from eating of the fruit of the tree that He told them not to eat of, or they can listen to the lie of the serpent, not trust God's Word, engage in wickedness, start walking the path of the wicked in a way of rebellion, and eat the fruit that God told them not to eat. Two ways, two choices. Joshua chapter 24, we know this. Israel has mostly successfully come into the promised land, overcome the people there. They're established. Joshua, this is kind of his final charge to the people of Israel. We know this this passage really well, but again, he's presenting two ways. What does he say? Verse 14, chapter 24, he says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness, Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. 
And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Again, before Israel, as they are about to dwell in the land, they can either do what? They can walk in God's way or they can walk in the way of the wicked. Two ways before them. One leads to life. The other leads to ruin. Fast forward to the New Testament, to Matthew chapter 7. The Lord Jesus Himself presents all of life in two ways, two choices, two paths that we must walk. Matthew 7, beginning in verse 13, we know these verses as well. He says, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And the point of what Jesus is saying there is there's a whole lot more people on the way to destruction than there are on the way to life. The crowd does not choose the right way. The world does not choose the right way. It chooses a path of wickedness that goes contrary to God, goes contrary to God's ways, goes contrary to God's word. It's, and the people on this path are shaped by what? That rebellion against God and His ways. And the point of what Jesus is saying here is it's worth it in the end to choose that hard path. It won't be easy. It's fraught with difficulty. It's fraught with trials and sufferings. But that's the way to life. John chapter 14, verse 6, that we all know so well when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's also drawing on this language of the way we should go. But in this instance, in John 14, what does Jesus say? He's not just saying, I'm showing you the way. I am the way. Now that's something new. That's something profound. So the right way is no longer just a a, a set of choices we make. It is a person we embrace, a person we follow, a person we trust with all our heart. And so the, the way of God, God's way is now not just a path we walk. It's the Lord Jesus himself that we identify with in every aspect of our life. We trust him as our savior from sin and the wrath of God. We follow him as Lord, as the one who shows us the right way, the one who leads us in the right path. And even Jesus himself, if we'll remember, faced this choice to go either God's way or the way of the wicked. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness. I'm going to read this real quick and just keep this this framework of these two ways in mind as we read this. And we see even Jesus himself faced this choice. And praise God He succeeded perfectly for us, okay? Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. 
But he answered, it is, and notice what he answered with, the word of God, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Jesus in all of who he was, was rooted in and shaped by God's word. And so must we be if we are to stay true to this path. We know we must walk. This whole message today is a presentation of the two ways, the only two ways that we can live. And it is an invitation, it's an exhortation to choose God's way. So as we talk through Psalm 1, Consider your own heart. Consider your own mind. Consider your own life. Where are you today? Which path are you walking? Which path have you chosen? Because there is good news. If you find yourself on the path of the wicked, on the way of the wicked, you can get off that path. And you can start on God's path, God's way, through faith in Jesus Christ today. You can start walking this new way. So let's go back to Psalm 1 and let's start breaking down this this passage and seeing these two ways at work. Verses 1 through 3 is the way of God or God's way. Verse 4 is the way of the wicked. And then 5 and 6 is the outcome of walking either of these two paths. So verse 1 again says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. So let's just start with that word blessed there. Um, If you were to do a word study on this and look it up in the Hebrew, you'll find that this word blessed refers to someone who is experiencing deep, uh, very rich and profound joy and happiness. It's a a deep-rooted, a deep-seated happiness that is not easily dislodged. Um, And this is going to matter for later in the psalm when we talk about uh, a tree rooted by by streams of water. We talk about the wicked being like chaff. Um, When we think of someone with deep-rooted joy, that means trials and sufferings and circumstances can't take it away. This is different from the happiness that we often think of in our culture, just this kind of effervescent, uh, you know, everything seems to be going well right now, so I'm, I'm happy, but the moment something comes contrary to that, we're not happy anymore. We're not talking about that kind of happiness. This is a deep-rooted happiness that can't be dislodged, and it is a pervasive happiness marking the whole of this person's life. So blessed is the man who... Three things he doesn't do, two things he does, okay? This is why he's blessed. This is why he experiences this joy. And remember, we're looking at the way of God, God's way as opposed to the way of the wicked. What are the three things this blessed, overjoyed person does not do? First, the psalmist says he walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Now, we should know that word walk refers to, it's a metaphor for how we live or the life we live. 
Uh, We walk with Jesus, not literally. Jesus is somehow spiritually here, and we figure out where He is, and so we're walking in some kind of... That's not what this is. It's, It's a metaphor for how we live. It's a metaphor for our life. And our lives are not directed by the counsel of the wicked if we are going to experience this overflowing joy. Um, counsel refers to advice, instruction, direction. And so when we think about this in terms of wicked people, wicked people are those who don't know God, who purposefully choose things that, that God hates. They delight in things that brings the wrath and judgment of God. They have perverse pleasures. And, and the psalmist is saying, if we want to walk in this joy and experience this deep-rooted happiness, we can't let a, a, a world in rebellion against God direct how we live. And it seems simple enough to say that, but we are surrounded, especially in our information overload age, we are surrounded by bad counsel, by bad advice, by wickedness. All you have to do is open up social media, um, and we know this instinctively now. It is just venom from one side to another side, and we are flooded with it. And we have to be careful as believers who we let into our hearts and minds to help us walk with God the way we should. There is a very bad tendency today to want to trust categories for identifying sin, for identifying righteousness and good behavior and bad behavior. The church has, has a, a very bad tendency today to want to listen to the world in terms of identifying what is good and what is evil. And what we see so many times are Christians who, who should be rooted in and shaped by the Word, and they're actually being rooted in and shaped by the world, and, and they start to talk like the world and sound like the world while still claiming allegiance to Jesus, and that ought not be. What should, at the end of the day, shape us, shape our thinking, shape our speaking, shape our responses to the events that we face in the world today, it is the Word of God and the Word of God alone. We don't need the help of the world. We don't need the wisdom of the world because 1 Corinthians, Paul says, God has made the wisdom of the world as foolishness. Why would we let that which comes out of a rebellion against God and is ultimately foolish in the sight of God, why would we direct our lives on that basis? And we ought not. And if we do, we set ourselves up to miss out on the joy and this deep-rooted happiness that this person, this righteous person that the psalmist is talking about, that he experiences. So this blessed man walks not in the counsel of the wicked. The second thing he does not do, he does not stand in the way of sinners. And when we say, when we think stand in the way of, a lot of times we might think, you know, you get in the way, you prevent like a defensive lineman, you know, prevent to prevent the running back from coming through. You're, not, you're getting in his way so he can't go anywhere. That's not what the psalmist is talking about. He's talking about positioning yourself um, in the way that sinners are going in such a way that they eventually start taking you with them. You can't know the joy of the Lord if you are constantly being influenced by people who don't walk with God. You just can't. Why? They don't know God. 
They don't know the Word of God. They don't know the ways of God. They don't know what's important to God. And so we don't want to position ourselves to be in the way of the direction they're going so that they start bumping into us and knocking us in that direction so that we eventually start walking with them. The third thing this blessed man does not do, he does not sit in the seat of scoffers. Another way we might look at that word seat is assembly. So it's like someone seated in an assembly of people who are mocking God, mocking the truth. They're at enmity with God. And we don't want to join with them. And the only way we're not going to join with them is if we are rooted in and shaped by the word instead of being rooted in and shaped by the world. If we are adopting the world's thought patterns and the world's categories for thinking and dealing with stuff, then we are going to eventually join their assembly. And we will find ourselves opposing God, opposing Christ, opposing the people of God, all the while thinking we might still be faithful to God. So those are the three things this blessed man does not do. But here are the two things he does do. And this is actually at root of of, of His blessedness and at root of the true path, this way of God, God's way. Two things. He delights in God's Word and He meditates on it continually. He delights in God's Word and He meditates on it continually. Think about that word delight. It means to take pleasure in, to to find great joy in something. Um, Most of us, hopefully, will be able to take great joy in Thanksgiving supper on Thursday. I know I will. Um, Whether you like turkey or not, whether you're a ham person or whether you don't eat meat, uh, maybe you'd argue dressing is where it's at and, you know, gravy, no gravy. It just depends on your thing. Man, I talk about this with my students and it is amazing how fiercely uh, their, their opinions come out on just whether or not you should put gravy on your cornbread dressing. I mean, like they get heated on this. Um, and other things like it. And then you start mentioning, well, we like mashed potatoes. Well, can you put gravy on your mashed potatoes? And that leads to another big debate. But we understand delight. If you're a sports fan, you understand delight in something, taking pleasure um, in the victory of your team. I go back to when I was in college. I hope to be shouting and hollering when the Georgia Bulldogs win the national title this year. I'm I'm wanting that to happen very much. Uh, But if it doesn't, I can still go back to, was it 1998 or 99, the Falcons. Some of y'all might remember this. You know, you never put the the term, the, the, the name Atlanta Falcons and Super Bowl in the same sentence because the two don't mix. It just wasn't a thing. And though here we are, um, I'm with some friends, uh, this is my freshman year, uh, I'm over at his, my friend's house, there's a bunch of us, we're watching the Falcons, they're in the semifinals, they're playing the Minnesota Vikings, um, the Vikings were the better team, uh, but the Falcons were not stopping, it's fourth quarter, the, the time's running out, Morton Anderson, old reliable, kicks a 40 plus yard field goal straight through, Falcons went to the Super Bowl, and let me tell you, We delighted in that victory. We ran out like a bunch of crazy people and were high-fiving, chest-bumping, screaming at the top of our lungs in the parking lot that the Falcons were going to the Super Bowl. We were delighting in that victory. And the psalmist says the difference between the righteous and the wicked is their delight in the Word of God. We know what delight is. And if you have been awakened to the glory of the gospel and to the beauty of Christ, 
you are awakened to the wonder of His Word and you can't get enough of it. And this sets the righteous apart from the wicked. It sets the way of God apart from the way of the wicked. Why? This man is blessed. He knows joy because he delights in the law of the Lord. That word for law means instruction. And it's, it's a shorthand way of referring to everything that is written for God's people. It's the entirety of this book that we are to delight in. From Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 and everything in between. This is our joy. This is what we hunger for. This is what we have to have. And if we don't have anything else, but we still have the Bible, we're okay. Because it's God's Word. It's God's law. It's God's instruction to us. So not only do, do, does he delight in God's law, secondly, he meditates on it day and night. And that means it's always in his heart. It's always in his mind. He can't get rid of it. He doesn't want to get rid of it. He's filled with it. To meditate literally means to kind of talk over something as you're thinking about it and pondering it. Um, you know, if you ever have time alone in the Word, do you ever talk out loud about what you're studying? Like I do, it helps me think about it better if I can hear it sometimes. If you heard me, you might think I'm crazy, but that's what it's talking about, kind of working through it, thinking over what the Scriptures say. Um, and it's something that is constantly going on. Constantly going on. And this is at root why this blessed person is blessed. It's because he delights in and he meditates on God's Word day and night. So let's look in now and see in verse 3 what the result of this meditation is for this blessed man. What does the psalmist say? Verse 3 says, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does he prospers. I got this from John MacArthur. It was not something I had noticed before, but it does not say he planted himself. It says he is like a tree that was planted, meaning it is the sovereign work of God that plants this tree where it is to receive the nourishment of the water that it's planted nearby. Referencing what? We are saved by grace alone. We are not saved by what we do. We are not saved by our good deeds. We are not saved by our inherent goodness. We are saved because God has mercy on us and places us in Christ and therefore we come alive and we believe. We do not take credit for our life in Christ. All the credit goes to God and to Christ. And again, if you are here today and you realize you don't have this life, it is yours for the taking if you will believe. That is the promise of Scripture. This new life is yours. Believe it. Receive it. Jesus is ready to give it. But you have to realize you need it. And you have to come desperate for it. And if you will, you will receive it. So this righteous person, this blessed person is like a tree planted by streams of water. Think about this. Why is this tree going to be so healthy and so strong? Because it's always near its source of life. This is why the tree can withstand anything is because its roots have gone down in to where the water is. And again, this is a metaphor for the Word of God for us. We need to regularly partake of the Word. Regularly be in the Word, reading the Word, meditating on the Word, seeing how we can apply the Word. Why? Because the, the Word is to us like that water is to the tree. It is our source of life. If we want to thrive... 
in the life God has called us to, we have to be regularly, continually in the Scriptures. What happens because of that? It yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. What does that mean? It is continually nurtured. So it is continually strong. It continually has life. We know a tree is unhealthy when its leaves prematurely turn color or turn brown and start falling off. We know something's wrong. We know something's wrong and we need to look at our own lives and and ask ourselves, how healthy am I? How healthy are you today, spiritually speaking? If If your life were to be compared to a tree, how would your leaves look today? Would they be bright and vibrant and and show the sign of life? Or would they be dry and starting to get crispy and crackly and, and falling off? We can gauge our spiritual health in many ways by how often or how often we are not in the Word. Just reading consistently and praying through what we read does wonders for our spiritual health. Now let's look at the contrast. Actually, no. Well, I almost left one of the most important things off, and I don't want to do that. The last part of verse 3, and all that he does, he prospers. I want you to hold your place here, and I want you to turn to Joshua chapter 1. I want you to turn to Joshua chapter 1. I think we can make a good case that Psalm 1 is actually making use of what Joshua 1 says. And so if we want to understand this word prosper here, we need to understand how it's being used in Joshua. Because the reason this matters is because we are very confused in the church today on the word prosper or prosperity. We, we have to deal with what has been called the prosperity gospel, which says if you just have enough faith, if you just give enough money, you're going to prosper financially, you're going to prosper materially, you're going to prosper in your health, you won't be sick, and if you are sick, you'll get better. If you're injured, you'll be healed, and so on and so forth. And we have to make sure we understand what Scripture means by prosper so that we don't get led astray by a false gospel like the prosperity gospel. This was something that um, I heard somebody else talk about. I cannot remember who it was, but it absolutely floored me when I considered what this word prosper means. And so let's look at Joshua. Let's get a definition and let's go back to Psalm 1 and see how it, how it works. Joshua 1, beginning in verse 1, we're going to read through verse 9. He says, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness in this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory." No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses my servant commanded you. 
Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. I think if we were to take time, we could see the psalmist is clearly reflecting upon God's words to Joshua. And in Psalm 1, he's applying applying them a lot more broadly than is being applied here in Joshua 1. But let's think about God's charge to Joshua, because this is key. It's very... um, we need to first consider a very common way, I think, of misunderstanding this. And as I say this, I want you to know my goal is not to be snarky. My goal is not to be antagonistic. My goal is simply to, to make a point, okay? How do we usually focus on a text like Joshua 1 and similar texts in the Old Testament? We usually give very little thought to the context, what surrounds it, what's actually going on. And we almost immediately launch into an allegorizing or spiritualizing way of talking about what God says to Joshua. And again, this may be familiar, maybe it's not, but I feel like I have to mention it so that we can contrast that with, I think, how we're supposed to understand this. Joshua was given God's word. I've been given God's word. Joshua was told to go in and defeat his enemies and conquer the promised land. I've been told to go in and defeat my enemies and conquer my promised land. Joshua's promised land was physical. My promised land was spiritual. God had big things for Joshua to accomplish, and enemies and giants stood in the way. God's got big things for me to accomplish, and there are enemies and giants that stand in my way. So if Joshua trusts God, if Joshua keeps his word... Then he's going to defeat his enemies. He's going to slay those giants. And he's going to do the big things God has for him. So if I will trust God, guess what? I'm going to defeat my enemies. I'm going to slay my giants. And I'm going to do all the big things I know God has for me. If Joshua just has enough faith, then he can take that promised land. And if I just have enough faith, I can take my promised land, my dream. If I have enough faith, I can slay all the spiritual giants of doubt, despair, fear, failure, and insecurity that keep me from accomplishing all my goals and reaching all my dreams. If I just have a Joshua-sized faith, I can make my dreams become reality and I'll slay every giant in my way until I do it. Does that sound at least a little familiar? It should. This is the same type of interpretation and application that we make use of when we read the story of David and Goliath and other stories as well. And I hope, I hope that it's obvious that that is not the best way to understand what's going on here. Because the money question is what is the prosperity being spoken of in Joshua? It's the same word that we find in Psalm 1 verse 3. So let's hone in on that just a little bit. We have to get this right. We have to get this right. The definition of to prosper means literally to bring to a successful issue. Okay, what in the world is that? Um, It means, think about it in terms of Joshua, okay? Joshua would prosper when he fulfilled the commission God gave him to lead Israel into the promised land. All right? He had a very narrow, specific focus, a very narrow, 
purpose and in light of how this word prosper is being used, we need to understand this. We prosper when we accomplish and fulfill the purpose God has for us. Okay? But let's think about it even more. Joshua had a very specific task of leading God's people into the promised land. If he stuck to what God's word said, and he didn't depart from it, he would be successful in leading God's people into the promised land. And here's where this gets important. You and I are not tasked with leading people to the promised land like Joshua did. If Joshua points to anyone, it points to Jesus, the true and better Joshua, who leads us into the true promised land into the presence of God. And so we have to say, okay, prospering has to do with specifically fulfilling whatever it is God has tasked you with, okay? So let's go back to Psalm 1 and let's think about this. What does it mean to prosper? Because again, Joshua, very specific, Psalm 1, much more broad. For us as believers, I think it means that we prosper when we strive to glorify God by enjoying and serving Him forever. That is our purpose in creation. It's why we exist. We are God's image bearers. And the way we image God is what? We glorify Him by enjoying and serving Him. Okay? That's the purpose God has for you. That's the purpose God has for me. And notice, it has absolutely nothing to do with finances or material possessions or health. Nothing whatsoever to do with that. And then you bring Christ into the picture. And so now, not only is our purpose as God's image bearers to glorify God by enjoying and serving Him, it's to do so with reference to Jesus. Making a big deal about Jesus as we glorify God and as we enjoy Him and as we serve Him. That's what it means to prosper. If we set our sights on that, then we can prosper in insanely big ways that the world would look at and say, you really haven't done much. But again, God doesn't gauge our prosperity by how much money we have or by how much stuff we accumulate or by how healthy we are. You know, how many steps did I get on my Fitbit today? Did I, did I get my fourth beach body workout in for the, you know, in two days? And like, that's not how God gauges prosperity. He sees it in relation to Himself. And so when we look here um, at the, this, this blessed person, this righteous person, it says in all that He does, He prospers. He's rooted in and shaped by the Word of God. And so His whole outlook on life is what pleases the Lord, what brings glory to God, what honors Him. And that's what I'm going to engage in. And the world does not understand that. But if our eyes are open to the truth, we say, man, I'm by God's grace, I'm talking about Jesus. I'm telling others about Him. I'm active in church. I'm, I'm sharing the gospel. I'm reading the Word. I'm praying. I'm discipling my family. I'm, I'm, I'm reaching my coworkers as best I can. And on and on and on. That is true prosperity in God's eyes. And you can be rich or poor and do that. Finances has nothing to add. Nothing. And that's not saying if you have a lot that that's evil. It's not. It's simply saying true prosperity in God's eyes has nothing to do with what the world says prosperity is. But we need to move on. Let's look at verse 4, the contrast here. We've seen the way of God, God's way. Now let's look at the way of the wicked. And it's interesting, he doesn't spend nearly as much time 
explaining the wicked here. He simply says, he's explained the way of the righteous, and he simply says in verse 4, the wicked are not so. Meaning what? They don't seek to be rooted in and shaped by the Word of God. And because of that, they don't know this joy. They don't know this true delight in God's Word. They're not filled with God's Word. They're not prospering the way God desires us to prosper. They're not like that. What are they like? He says, verse 4, they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Chaff is an interesting, interesting thing. If you are into any kind of agriculture and harvesting corn, wheat, barley, and all of that, you know, um, chaff is what is separated when threshing takes place. And it's basically you've got to beat the, 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 the kernel, whatever it is, wheat or corn or whatever, and you knock off this very thin, light outer husk. And so lightweight is it that a simple puff of wind can blow it away. And that is what the wicked are like in comparison to the righteous. So take those two images. You've got a tree firmly planted by streams of water, nurtured, strong, healthy, versus something that the slightest puff of wind can take away. There's a big difference there. And that leads us into verse 5, the outcome for the righteous and the wicked. And he spends the majority of verse 5 talking about the wicked, only hints at the righteous. He says, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Again, think of the imagery here. Judgment, if you want to take from, from verse 4, the blowing of a wind. Um, this wind of judgment comes. It doesn't even have to be a strong wind, and the wicked are taken away. And what that means is, if you are not firmly rooted in God's truth and in God Himself through faith in Jesus, when judgment comes, you will be taken away. You will be taken away. Those who walk the path of the wicked, which is a path that ignores the Word of God, that ignores God, that doesn't want to keep God in one's mind, that doesn't want to reckon with, with, with the reality of who God is and the choices they make, that's the way of the wicked. If that's the way you choose, when the final judgment comes, you will be taken away says the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Now we know we're all sinful and we're all sinners. Uh, we haven't had our sin, sin hasn't been completely removed from us yet. That won't happen if you're a believer until Jesus comes back, until we're in His presence. But here, the contrast between sinners and righteous is the same contrast we've been looking at this whole time. Sinners are those who disregard God and His Word. The righteous are those who give very careful regard to God and His Word. And what the psalmist is saying is if you don't care about God and what God has said, then you will not be with the assembly of His people on the final day. Those who love God and His Word are those who will be in this assembly. Verse 6. He says, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. The Lord is intimately acquainted with, He watches over the way of those who keep Him first, who choose His Word and want to be rooted in it and shaped by it. He's close to them. And if that describes you today, if you have a desire for the Word and you want to be rooted in it and shaped by it, God is close to you. He's not far. He's close. He's near. He watches over you. Again, this is not an expectation of perfection. 
It's more an attitude and trajectory of our souls. And for those who are on the path of God's way, God is there. He is there. But the way of the wicked will perish. There's life at the end of this path for the righteous. But there is eternal ruin and judgment for the wicked. That way, apart from God, not taking regard for God, not keeping God first and foremost in your life and in your thoughts, that way leads to death and it leads to judgment. And that's why we say there are only two ways to live. There's God's way, the way that's rooted in and shaped by His Word, which leads to life. And there's the way of the wicked, which is rooted in and shaped by a world in rebellion against God, which leads to death and judgment. And this is where the good news of the gospel comes in. If you realize you're not on the right path today, guess what? That's why Jesus came. He stood in the place of wicked people and sinners and received the judgment that they deserve. And if that's you and you will own it, then you can know that He received your judgment on the cross, in your place, as your substitute. He took it all so that you can be forgiven and you can start walking in God's way. Christian, let me ask you this as we close. What counsel have you been listening to? What counsel has been shaping you? Has it been the world? Has it been the Word? Only you can answer that. So as we pray here in just a second, let's all examine our own hearts and let's respond as God leads. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you make it clear the two ways that we are, the two options that are before us and the ways that we can choose to live. And Lord, I want to walk in your way. And I pray that every single one of us in here would want to walk in your way. And I pray that God, the reality and, and, and the joy at the end of that, the life at the end of that would, would appeal to our hearts so that we wouldn't want to go the way of the wicked. God, wake us up if we are in any way slumbering, if we have drifted into wicked counsel and we have drifted into walking in a path that sinners walk on so that they are influencing us. God, convict our hearts if in any way we have sat in the assembly with those who would mock You. And God, if we are striving faithfully on this road, may we take heart that You are with us. You are there. God, bring back those who have strayed. And Lord, for the first time, even now, may someone leave the path of wickedness to walk in Your way. And we know that that way is not just a path, it's a person, the Lord Jesus. God, work as we sing and as we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.